Deuteronomy. Uh, you, You probably will not believe this because we're Deuteronomy 12, but we only have a few lessons left in Deuteronomy. And the reason why is uh, the first 11 chapters are really the important framework, the big idea about what this is all about and what Moses is doing as he preaches, preaches these final sermons. And what we're entering into now when we come from really chapter 12 to chapter 26 is really the details of some of the law. And the reason why I'm going to go more quickly over that is because many of those laws have been expressed in Exodus. And we went through Exodus with a much finer tooth comb through all those details. And so with Deuteronomy going as a rehearsal of some of the same laws, it'll be my intent for us to see some of the big pictures and the big ideas uh, regarding these laws. So I only think we have like five, maybe six lessons left in Deuteronomy, actually. And I know that's stunning with me because I can find a way to make lessons go on and on and on, I know. Uh, But Deuteronomy, uh, getting to look at it with this lens, I think is going to be really fantastic and seeing some of the big pictures. In particular, tonight's going to be, I think, a startling lesson. I found this lesson and these two chapters to be uh, a text that that bowled me over because I have never spent a whole lot of time in Deuteronomy. Uh, You know, it's just not one of those top 66 books where you go, I'm going to be all my days in Deuteronomy. And I'm so glad that we are because it is amazing what we see here. But I'm just going to warn you up front. Uh, what this says here is is really tough. All right. Uh, in chapter 12, you're going to notice that now uh, God begins to talk about right worship. He's going to talk to them about when they come into the land, you need to worship me the right way. Uh, and notice in particular verse 2 of Deuteronomy 12, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills. Every green tree you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down their carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. It's interesting that God says, we're going to come into the land. There's going to be this temptation for you to worship me like the nations worship their gods. And you're not allowed to do that. I don't care how all of the pagans and all of these different religious groups who had their bales and their ashram and all of the various idols that they had. And yeah, they worship their gods this way. But he says, that's not going to work for me. Uh, all worship is not acceptable to me. You're going to go into the land and verse four, very carefully, he says, I don't want you to worship me that way, which immediately is fascinating because God says this a lot, even though we live in a religious world today that just simply breathes in the idea of you can worship God however you want. That never came out of God's mouth. And God does not say, when you come into the land, any place will do, and however you want to do it is fine. I'm okay with that. As long as it's not Baal or Ashram, as long as it's directed to me, I'll accept that. He doesn't say that. Notice what he says there in verse 4. You don't worship me in that way. Not the way you see the nations doing it. Not the way they worship the Baals. Not the way they worship the Asher. Not the way there are these other ways. He says, when you get into the land, I'm going to tell you how to do it. In fact, you'll notice he's going to describe his name being put in there and how you would come worship him in verses 5, 6, 7. Notice verse 8. 
You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. That struck me. You're not to worship me. Don't be doing the things that we're doing here today. What what is that? The rest of verse 8. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet come to the rest or to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Basically, we've had some tolerances in the wilderness, but that's not how you're going to worship me when we go in. We've had a little bit of some tolerances along the way, but it is not going to be according to how you see it in your own eyes. And that phrase is stark to me because does not the book of Judges jump off the page when you read everyone doing what is right in their own eyes? And you're like, whoa, that is not a good thing when you read that phrase. And he's saying, worship right now, not how it's going to be. Everybody's doing how they they see fit, but we're going to enter the land and it's going to be different and you're going to worship me as I prescribe and that's the only way I'm going to accept worship from you an important principle being laid out about how we worship him in back verse 5 when he says you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there and there you shall go and begins he describes the offerings that will be done there and so he says We're going to go into the land and you're going to find and wait for me to tell you where worship will be. I'm going to designate the place and I'm going to put my name there and that's where I'm going to dwell. And I think that's an interesting picture then of, okay, we're going to go in the land and we're going to wait for God to tell us what to do. It wasn't going to the land and everybody, you know, just build an altar and let's just start offering sacrifices and let's all do it how we want to do it. He says, you're going to wait and I'm going to tell you what to do. And when we get in there, you wait because that's where I'm going to put my name and you wait because that's where I'm going to live. My name will be there and I will be among you in that in that very place. And the knowledge of that, you will notice for chapter 12, is supposed to then generate joy. They're supposed to be rejoicing in worship. Three times in this chapter, he says that. Chapter 12, verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households. Verse 12. And there you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and female servants and the Levite that is in your town. Verse 18. But you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your sons, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite is in your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Worship is always supposed to come from a heart of joy. It is always supposed to be from gladness. Now, do you find a little bit of irony about that? Because how do you go up to somebody and say, I want you to do something happily? (laughs) You You tell people to do something with joy is a little counterintuitive, right? But the idea behind that is you are going to be so overwhelmed by the blessings of God and me putting my name there and me dwelling among you that the result is going to be you'll worship with me with rejoicing. You'll be overjoyed to worship me. You'll desire to do that very thing. 
And, and that's the idea behind it. It's not, okay, I'm going to command you to have joy. But you're going to want that. And that is the kind of worship that God always accepts. One of the things that I think is fascinating about this is this is truly setting up for us a New Testament vivid imagery. Because there's going to come a point where Jesus is going to come along and say, I'm the temple. I'm the place of worship. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That I'm the way to the Father. I am the truth. I am the life. In fact, Emmanuel is God with us. That God puts His name in the Son, in Jesus, and worship of the Father now happens through Him as the new temple. This is setting up that shadow, that picture of that. That in the new covenant days, you're not just going to worship however you want. You're going to come to where His name is and worship Him. And it's fascinating that it actually turns out not to be a location. It turns out to be God himself, the son. And that's why Jesus comes along and says, I'm the temple. That's how you access the father. So you're getting that imagery here in Deuteronomy, setting that up. Right worship matters to God. It has always mattered to God. Not only did it matter under new covenant, not only did it matter under old covenant. What's one of the very first things we see, but Cain and Abel and the problem of Right and wrong worship. It has always been a factor before God. And here this certainly drives that home. That we're coming into the promised land and we're not going to do what is right in our own eyes. We're going to do things the way God says. Now this is something that I think is important in verses 8 through 11. You are getting the inside track because you know in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 are going to be all about this idea of rest. Now, we have been in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now Deuteronomy, and we don't read about that. There's not anything going on with rest until right now. And I want you to notice what he says about that. Again, verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet come to the rest. And to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit. And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. Your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow before the Lord. This is an important first step of a picture about what God is visualizing and beginning to prepare for the people when he starts talking about there being a rest for them. Notice, first of all, that rest and worship are tied together very closely. We are in the midst of this discussion. All of chapter 12 is about how to worship God, not according to idols, but according to the way God says. And right here in the middle of it, he starts talking about the rest. And as you notice in verse 11, he goes back into worship. The place that I choose, where I put my name there, that's what you're going to do. Rest and worship. Rest and fellowship with God is tied together. That's very important to catch. And the detail that's given here in particular 
is given to us in verse 10 when he says you're going to go into the land and he says you're going he's going to give you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety the idea of the rest that god is offering is that there is no longer a threat from the enemies you dwell securely and safely so that you don't have to worry about survival, but can just simply focus on worship. That's what's happening here. I'm going to bring you into the land. I'm going to give you rest. And that rest means that you are not going to have enemies around you from every side. You're going to live securely. And that's where I kind of broke, broke it off in verse 10, verse 11. What are you supposed to do? Worship. Worship is to be the outflow of the rest. That the focus now moves on that. Now I want us to just kind of take a minute here and and think about that. When God promised rest, He was not promising rest in terms of how we often define it. When we, if I were to ask you if you rested today, you would probably equate that to a nap. <laughs> rest equals stopping all activities by our definition. But that's never the definition God uses in talking about rest. And it is seen over and over again when it came to the Sabbath. Sabbath never meant stopping all activities. We can prove that over and over again. We can go to the creation and God rests on the seventh day from all of his works that he had done. But remember what Jesus says, God never stopped working. (laughs) Just because there was a Sabbath didn't mean all activities stopped. God was still active. God was still going. In fact, when we see the description given in regards to the work that the priests would do, they did more work on the Sabbath than the other days of the week. Sabbath was, a, was a, a, an important day of offering before God. It's a worship day. The priests didn't all stop working, but it was still a Sabbath. It was still a rest. The idea of this rest is being pictured that you are dwelling securely without the problem of an external threat, without those cares and worries, giving you the freedom to simply focus on one thing. You can focus on worshiping God. In fact, that's what you're seeing the failure be when it came to the Sabbath. Because what were the people supposed to do? Absolutely nothing when the Sabbath day rolled around? Not at all. They're supposed to remember that they were slaves in Egypt and God brought them out by a mighty hand. It's worship that is figured there. What is God doing? God is saying, I'm going to bless you so significantly on the day before that you won't have to worry about picking up manna when you're in the wilderness or picking up the meat or doing the various work in in your farms when you come into the land. You're going to rest because God's going to provide for you. And what was supposed to be the outcome of that? Worship. You don't have to worry about survival that day. You don't have to go get your food. You don't have to take care of those things. It's a day that would be devoted to the Lord. And God then is going to take care of that. That there would be that focus on God. Now think about how that is the image that God has done from the very beginning. Go to the Garden of Eden. You know, sometimes we miss the fact that it says that Adam was laboring. <laughs> he's, he's keeping the ground. There are activities. There is work that's happening. 
But what's God offering? You can just focus on me. Just enjoy this worship. Enjoy this fellowship. His presence is there. And you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. How did Adam and Eve do with that? They refused. They absolutely refused. So notice if we rolled that forward, now Israel's being given the same offer, aren't they? We're going to come into the land and I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you an inheritance and I'm going to give you blessings. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to take over cities and take over farms and take over land. And I'm going to protect you from your enemies and you will not have to worry about any outside threat. And why would God do that for the people so that they would focus on worship? So that they would enjoy fellowship with God and worship with him. That's what the rest was really all about. And I just want you to see that here in Deuteronomy. I can't go preach Hebrews 3 and 4 now, but we'll be there very soon. That's next. We just finished chapter 2, so we're right around the corner on that just a couple of weeks. And this sets the stage for understanding why there is a rest that still remains and what God is trying to picture with a rest. And that's not a nap. It's a picture of what we are able to do with God and something that is very beautiful and very valuable to us. So the, the rest becomes really fascinating and really important in grasping what God intends, that God was intending fellowship with his people. That the tabernacle would be there in the very midst of the people and the people could enjoy that worship with him. All right, let's keep going so we don't lose power. If this was back home, my power would be already out by now with all that lightning. So chapter 12, now look at verse 29. Because now after talking about worship, talking about the rest and talking about idols and how to worship. He comes back to idolatry again. I told you in class, idolatry comes up a lot. Verse 29 of chapter 12, when the Lord your God cuts off the nation before you, the nations whom you go in to dispossess, you dispossess them and dwell in their land. Take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? that I may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Notice he says, here's what's supposed to happen. Now, Sabbath is about worship and fellowship. So notice he transitions back to Don't have idols. (laughs) I'm giving you this opportunity so that you would be blessed and enjoy the privileges and rest of God so that you would worship me. So when you come into the land, don't be tempted to worship me the way the nations did. You see how we just kind of came full circle because chapter 12 verse 1 started there and now we're coming back to that very idea. But notice he even says, I don't even want you to ask how they did it. Don't even research it. You know, kids, you do not get to do a research project on how the people of Baal, the Baal, the worshipers of Baal, how they worship. He said, I don't even want you to look into it. Stay away from it. Do not worship like the, those pagans did. Do not worship me that way. Now watch this in chapter 13, verse 1. Terrible chapter break. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder 
And the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. I just want you to imagine that scene for a minute. You're going to come into the land, and I want you to think about this. There's going to be a person who comes into your midst, and he starts doing a sign or a wonder. He does something amazing. And it comes to pass when he does the sign. Now, you would think default action would be, well, we've got to follow this guy, right? Verse 2, in the middle, if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul. So there's going to be people coming along. What they're going to do is they're going to say all kinds of false things. And they're going to try to validate it with the signs and wonders. They're going to do all kinds of things. And they're going to look like, man, look at this. It all came to pass. And notice the motivation that's under it. God says, you want to know why I let that happen? Because I'm testing you. Have you ever asked the question why you see these false guys running around doing signs and wonders and things and you think this doesn't make any sense? Why would they be doing something like that? Why would God allow that? Here's why. He's testing you to see if you will believe in him or not. It didn't matter if a person did a sign or a wonder or a miracle. It didn't even matter if it came to pass. If that person then turned around and said something that was directly a violation of what they knew to be the will of God, they were to reject that prophet, reject that guy who had a vision, reject him if he had a dream, reject him if he performed any sign or wonder. It didn't matter. And here's God saying, I mean, that's going to happen. I'm going to allow that to happen. To see if you're really truly devoted to me or not. And that's the thing. is He wants to know if you are going to either follow false ways. Or if you're going to follow God's ways. Verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. It doesn't matter what somebody says. You know what the law is. You can imagine Moses saying, I've given you the laws. That's what's happening in this sermon. It was given to the prior generation. It's given to this generation as well. And it doesn't matter who comes along and says otherwise. Sounds like Galatians 1, doesn't it? Apostle Paul, I don't care if an angel from heaven comes to you and says something. If it's not what God said, let him be accursed. It's not what we're supposed to follow. We must do what God says. And so here is the same thing. It doesn't matter what wonder or sign or teaching or whatever they may do. If it does not accord with what God says, they must be rejected. In fact, I want you to notice, not only is that individual be rejected, look at verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Notice it's not, well, that guy's just not so great. A teacher of rebellion under the old covenant, he says, is to be put to death. In fact, that phrase, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, The Apostle Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 5 when we have this man who's got the wife and and the sexual immorality that's going on and you get to the end of that paragraph, you're supposed to then withdraw from that one and purge the evil from the midst. The point here is very simple. 
And God is being very clear and it's very important. Intentional rebellion is not tolerated by God. This person does a sign, a wonder, and yet what he says is in direct rebellion to what God said. And here God says that person should be put to death. Because one of the clear messages that God states over and over again is rebellion against him is unacceptable. And that's what you is the appropriate application of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Is that here is somebody that doesn't care what God says. You can go to them all you want to and say what you're doing is wrong. And they say, we don't care. I'm going to stay in this relationship because that's not right. Purge them from the midst. This is the whole point is that rebellion is not accepted by God. Now, here's the hard part. Verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of your embrace, or your friend who is as your, is your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the end, ones on the earth, one end of the earth or the other, You shall not yield to him, nor listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall your eye spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him with with death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God and brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. That's when I... My eyes bugged out and I came out of my chair reading that part. I went, whoa. This applied to family members. Son, daughter, parent, child, wife, husband, friend of close embrace, you know, friend of, as if your closest friend. Because the principle that we just laid out, intentional rebellion is not tolerated by God. This is a critical message that God's trying to get us to understand. It is not acceptable to him for us to choose to go up against God's will and think that's okay. And what I think is particularly hard is that what we would have the tendency to do is to make excuses for the family member or close friend. What I want you to observe that he says actually in in. Uh, verse 9 your hand shall be the first against him there's a responsibility of the family member to identify the rebellion and say what you're doing is wrong you have to stop what you're doing it is a picture that God is crying out to his people that our commitment to God would always be stronger than even family Now, we probably agree with that last sentence. We could go to the New Testament everywhere where it talks about, you know, forsaking everything. Who will not forsake either mother, father, 
parent-child, and give up all this and follow me, right? We see that in the New Testament where Jesus is saying that, that you would even forgo your family to follow the Lord your God with all of your heart. But I want you to see that's always been a concept. It's always been a picture. Is that God comes first, always, always. And it's interesting that God is using this and saying, and I allow these things to happen to test you to see if you really do love me above all else. Or do you love your friend more? Or do you love your family more? And here's a picture that we're needing to love even God more. If that were not enough, verse 12, and if you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God has given you to dwell there, certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, then you shall surely put the inhabitants of the city to the sword, devoting it to destruction and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil in the midst of the open square and burn the city with all its spoil of fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. Notice then what he says is, I don't care what the majority's doing. Uh, I, I don't care if it's a whole city that decides, well, we're going to do something against God. God goes, I don't accept that either. I think there are two really big ideas that I want to talk about, but let me give you the first overarching idea to get into those two big ideas of application for us. The big overarching idea that you see in these two chapters is there's no excuse for rebelling against God, and there has to be action that's taken against rebellion. That's something God says over and over and over again. This is what Matthew 18 is all about, is here is someone who refuses to repent, and you go to that person, one person, then the witnesses, and then to the whole church, which is the whole idea, is the very same principle, is that action needs to be taken. And I think it is important for us to underscore right here, we are not talking about a repentant one. We are not talking about somebody who has committed sin, and they are sorrowful for their sin, they are repenting of their sin, and they are not intending rebellion, but have been identified for what they've done, And they're turning their life back to God. That's not in view. This chapter was about, they say, we're not serving that God. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to worship other gods. We're going to worship Baal and Asherah. We're going to serve these other gods. This is what he says then. There's no excuse for that. Rebellion cannot be tolerated. And I want to just ask them, why is that so important to God? I think we have a hard time with this because we're in such... We are in such a culture right now that is so much, you know, all paths lead to God. What you want to believe is fine, and what I want to believe is fine, and, you know, we all have our own truth, and we all see things differently, and, you know, we're all just groping in the dark, and there's all of these great cliches that are used in the religious world. Why is it so important to God about this? Why can't we just go our own way and do things our own path? What does it really matter? I think there's two things, two arching things that we see here. Number one, what God is doing in these two chapters is trying to call Israel 
to enjoy a relationship with Him. I want you to enjoy me. Not your perspective of me or what you want to do, but me. This is the idea of that rest. I'm calling you into fellowship and I'm calling you into worship. I want you to enjoy me. So we saw three times rejoicing in the worship, rejoice in me over and over again. And the idea of that is our very purpose, the whole reason we exist is so that the true and living God is glorified. That's not happening if we serve Him or worship Him in our own construct or in our own way. God is so adamant about this is because we exist so that other people will see the true and living God. That they will see here is who God truly is. And here is what it looks like to serve Him. This is what it looks like to love Him. And this is what it looks like to worship Him. And if we aren't doing that, then how is the world ever going to see the true and living God? That was what Israel was supposed to be. They're supposed to be the light to the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth. If they worship God however they choose, let's go back to the wilderness and with golden calves and do it however they please, God's not honored. God's not worshipped. The true and living God gets to tell us how we worship Him. We don't tell Him how we worship Him. It's so important to God because what God is calling for us to do is enjoy a relationship with who He truly is. Not the God that we come up with in our minds and in our hearts. And number two, it is interesting to me that He points out that the danger isn't always from the outside, but it's actually from the inside. The danger sometimes we always look at is the outside. They're out there and, you know, those worldly people and they're trying to get us to turn away from God. Well, that's certainly true. But there is a very real danger that comes from the inside. And what God is doing is saying, I am testing you to see if you really love me or not. I'm sure you've seen this. I hope you haven't. But I've seen enough of it that it's certainly disturbing, and you probably have too, where we've seen in places, rather than truly dealing with people's sins, excuses are made. You know, well, it's a prominent family member who gives a lot of money, so we're not going to rock the boat. We're not going to deal with that sin. We're going to cover over sins. It's shocking how many sins are covered over and pushed to the side. And there's reasons for that, either in making excuses because they're an important member of the congregation, because they're a large contributor, because they say, you know, if you do something, we're going to leave. And there's lots of factors that come into that. I just want us to see that what God is saying is He is making it clear. And we are being tested to see If we will love the Lord even more than our closest friends and even more than our closest family. That was so important to God that the people as they're about to come into the land 
had to accept this critical truth. The rule of God applies to every facet of your life. It applies to everything. And Israel could not come in and say, well, what if I want to worship these idols? God goes, no. Well, what if it's a whole city that goes astray? God says, no. Well, what if it's my closest friend? God says, no. Well, what if it's even my own family? God says, no. There is a critical picture being given here that God does not accept rebellion and it must always be our mission then to call to true repentance. We're not doing anybody any favors if all that we ever do is cover over people's sins. Cover it over, cover it over, that's okay. When it's rebellion against God. If somebody's willfully choosing and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, like I mentioned earlier, we're not talking about accidental sin and people who are repentant. We're talking about people who say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to serve God I want to serve God. God calls that rebellion. And God never accepted that. And I just wanted to end the lesson by just letting that challenge our own hearts. That is there rebellion in our lives that we would need to address? Would we consider ourselves and think, are we choosing to turn our heart away from God? Are we choosing to serve something or someone that is more important than God himself? I would hope that we would see what the beautiful picture is of these two chapters is God is exemplifying what it means for him to be a jealous God and how he wants you exclusively for him. He doesn't want you serving anything else. He loves you too much for that. He doesn't want you throwing your life away to the things of the world. He doesn't want you destroying your life and the things that this world destroys you with. He wants so desperately to have a relationship with but does not accept the individual who says, that I will not do. It is such a wonderful thing that you see how desperately and earnestly and ferociously God wants a relationship with us. He wants it that bad. It's hard to comprehend that. It is so hard to comprehend. He would care this much, but he does. God does not share. He wants all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind. I hope you'll think about those things this evening and think about what we can do then to ensure that we are not choosing to follow after our own idols and refuse to serve the living God. Would you turn away from your sins tonight? Would you consider the love of God, the faithfulness of God, and the mercy of God is great enough for your sin that you would turn to Him with all of your heart. You would not willfully choose to turn against God and willfully choose to disobey God, but instead serve Him and love Him and come to Him before it's too late. Can we help you do that tonight? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?